Hey, Pastor Bobby here. I'm so glad you're joining us to hear what God is sharing with our community here at Chapel. And I pray, I am praying right now for you, that this message will bless you. It'll be an inspiration to you. It will challenge you to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. And so as we jump into the message, I pray that you open up your mind to God's word, open up your heart to God's spirit, and watch the two come together to bring a supernatural miracle in your life. So let's jump into what God is speaking to us right now. Last week during the third service, we had a young gentleman who came down front to worship, but instead of staying to the side, he came down to the front, which to me is drawing attention to yourself. And then he actually came up on the platform. My eyes were closed. I was in worship. Pastor Dylan hit me. He's like, pastor, pastor, look up. And I'm like, did we just add worship people to the platform? And so I came up the platform because my job, I believe, as the pastor of the church is one, to create an environment where the Holy Spirit can move in the lives of people. But it's also a place where you can worship God on your own, but also corporately, but also create order that God is pleased with. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the whole thing is about how the church has gotten out of order and Paul's trying to set the church back in order. And so I knew that was out of order because of lots of things. One, and it wasn't supposed to be up there. He was drawing attention to himself. Two, he didn't know what was up here. He could have kicked over a microphone, could have you know, done anything. So there's lots of things that could have happened. So I came up on the platform. I'm sharing this with you, one, to set culture, that, to, that we are an expressive church, a worship church, a spirit-filled church, but we're also a church of order. Two, I want you to understand that you can trust me in creating an environment where you're safe and there's trust there. So I came up with the platform, put my arm around him in a very pastoral moment. I said, hey, you cannot be up here. And he began to tell me that we have to be radical for Jesus. And I said, yes, we do need to be radical for Jesus. But right now you're drawing attention to yourself. And worship, listen, this is a key definition in this church. Worship is drawing attention to God. Once you start drawing attention to yourself, it is no longer worship. And so I very clearly said, I said, hey, worship is drawing attention to God, not drawing attention to yourself. You know, if you're down here worshiping, and this is one of my problems, I have a problem with dance. But many times we, when people dance in, in charismatic, spirit-filled churches, they want to come to the very front of the church where everyone in the church can see them. That's why we have a space to the side. That's why we have a space here. You can go up to the balcony. You can go in the back. There's plenty of places. But once you put yourself in sight of everyone else, you rob them of the chance to worship. So much so, I was in uh, Panama City, Panama, one of the, the most influential churches in Central and South America. Huge conference. I remember Pastor Davis on the very front row. There's an altar call. A couple hundred people responded to the altar call. And we're at the altar, and the guy in front of us starts kind of responding jerking around and shaking and kind of dancing, but there's people all over and he's pushing other people around as he's shaking and dancing. And I speak a little bit of Spanish, not a whole lot of Spanish, and this little female usher came up and she put her hand on that guy so firmly, I was scared. <laughs> and in Spanish, I picked up pieces. She says, you're robbing people of their encounter with God. Stop. And so I, I simply said that to this young gentleman, I said, listen, I was like, I want you to worship, but worship is drawing attention to God. You're drawing attention to yourself. He said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to draw attention to myself. My thought was, it's Easter Sunday. You are on top of the platform that's designed so people can see you. That is what is happening. So we, we basically came off the platform, and I walked him through kind of what worship is, what worship is not. And so I just want you guys to know that where we're at as a church, that if you want to dance, that's fine. Dance in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself, but draws attention to God and his grace. If you want to shout, shout in a way that's not distracting those around you. Like there's a time to shout. There's a time to remain quiet. There's a time to dance. There's a time to sit still. There's, there's a time for everything. And order is making sure those things happen at the right place and right time. Make sense? All right. Glory to God. Luke chapter 16. A lot of stuff going on in this scripture. 
Four questions we walk through. Origin, where do I come from? How am I designed? How am I made? Who created me? Two, what is my purpose? If I'm created, do I have a purpose in this life? Three is morality. What is right? What is wrong? Who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong? Which leads to the fourth question of destiny. What happens when I die? What happens when I take my final breath and my body loses all of its energy, all of its strength, all of its life? What happens when I die? Is that it or is there more to life than what I see? Is there more to life than just the, the 70, 80, 90, whatever amount of years you live? Is there more to life than just the life you live right now? And it's amazing. Every religion in the world has some explanation that there is life after death. Every religion. And I believe God gives us desires for things that are real. I believe when, when religions first came to be, I don't think they would create an idea of an afterlife without a desire for an afterlife. I believe God has placed, as Ecclesiastes 3, 1 says, that he's placed eternity in our hearts. That there's a desire to know what happens on the other side of death. Buddhism believes in nirvana, that you move from one heaven to the next heaven until you reach perfect nirvana. Once you reach perfect nirvana, you cease to exist. Islam believes in a heaven that is based on sensuality and desires. Hinduism is based on reincarnation, meaning if you don't do good in this life, you get to come back an Auburn fan in the next life. <laughs> if you do really good, you get to be an Alabama fan, or if you do really good, you get to be a Clemson fan now. See, Alabama's changed in the hierarchy of reincarnation. So every religion has some explanation. And so it's amazing to me that every religion, and you think every religion, that's, there's six, almost seven billion people in the world now. We're thinking there's five plus billion people in the world that believe in an afterlife of some sorts, yet no one ever thinks about their afterlife. Even scientists are starting to catch up. 59% of doctors believe in an afterlife due to the experiences they've had with the human body and with people. And they've started doing research on near-death experiences where they, they research people who have died and came back to life on an operating table or through cardiac arrest. And they've gone through all these experiences. And what they've seen is there's some universal, normal things that happen in a near-death experience. One, many times, is a tunnel of light. One is a dark tunnel. Another one is a love-warming feeling. Another one is an immense amount of fear and terror. And so they've researched, it doesn't matter which religion you come from or what part of the world you come from, those near-death experiences all carry the same formula or ingredients. That if you were born a Hindu and never heard about Christ, you still experience the dark tunnel and maybe the light at the end of the tunnel. You still experience warmth of love or sometimes terror. It doesn't matter where you come from, they're all the same and they're so distinct that it's rocking scientist minds that there was an 11-year-old boy who died of cardiac arrest on an operating table. And when they brought him back to life, he could describe what the operating room was like while he was dead. He could tell the doctors what they were talking about. He could tell them where the instruments were located. And it blew the doctor's mind. There's another story of a person who was blind and who died on the operating table. When they resuscitated this person, many, many people, not just one, many blind people, they could tell them which clothes and what color clothes the surgeons and nurses were wearing. Even the jewelry that they had on. Even where the instruments were located in the operating room. 
Things that could not be determined in their physical sense. And the, the one that gets me the most in this great book by Denise DeSalza called Evidence for the Afterlife is this one. There's a lady who was in the ER. She passed away. They resuscitated her. When she came back, she started talking about some shoes on the roof. And they were amazed. They said, lady, listen, you've had a rough day, obviously. You, you don't know what you're talking about. You've had a very rough day. Just sit back, relax. We'll get you some more medication. Whatever you need, we'll take care of you. So she's laying there. She's like, no, no, you don't understand. There's a kid's shoe on the roof. And so go to this whole thing. And it was nighttime for one. And they're like, lady, you've never been to this hospital. Went through the whole thing. She says, listen, there's, a, there's shoes on the roof. So she tried to tell them third floor, this ledge, da, da, da. they send somebody up there, they can't find the shoes. And she tells them, listen, I promise you, there's shoes on the roof. And so they keep going. Finally, there's one door they could not get through because it was locked and no one had been up there because it was off, off limits or whatever it may be. So they find one janitor who had that one key. He opens the door. They go up on this roof. They're looking all over these shoes. And on the ledge on the third floor, they find a pair of kids' shoes, just like she said. I'm telling you, there is something that happens when we die and it's not death. There's a transition that happens that changes from this life to the next. And we've been talking about this, that I believe science is just now catching up with what the word of God says. Science is just now catching up with what Jesus has been preaching forever and ever. And so if you would stand to your feet as we read Luke chapter 16 together. And I'll start in verse 19. It says, there's a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels, carried by the angels, to Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side, depending on the translation you're using. The rich man also died and he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. You know, there's a time when mercy's too late. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, this is pretty arrogant to me. This poor man had been laying in sores, wanting crumbs from your table, and you walked over him every single day of your life. And now that you've transitioned, now you want him to come serve you by putting water on your mouth to get rid of the torment. I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here. It's good to know there's comfort somewhere. And you are in anguish. And besides all this between us, you, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Everybody say a great chasm. In order that those would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that they may warn them that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Meaning they, they, they've heard the gospel. The gospel is being preached. The word is being preached. And he said, no, Father Abraham, 
But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. It seems like whatever God gives us is never enough. Abraham's telling him, listen, I've sent prophets and priests and preachers and messengers, and now you want something more. And if you won't respond to the word of God, you're not going to respond to any sign of God. That's that's the problem with the miracles and signs and wonders. If you're not going to respond to the word of God, you're not going to respond to a miracle of God. We see that with with the Hebrews in Egypt. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father, we love you. And we thank you that your word is enough. That the message of the gospel, the message of your love, the message of grace is more than enough to move us from death to life. And we thank you that the resurrection is not a one-time event, but it's an everyday experience for those that love you and trust you. And I pray in this moment that you awaken us to the reality of the eternal destination of every single soul that's been created. I pray that you awaken us to the depths of your mercy and your grace. I pray that you awaken us to the reality of all the comfort, peace, joy, and hope in heaven, but also the reality of the torment of hell. And so Father, I pray that you awaken us, let hell motivate us to mission, and let heaven motivate us to hope. And so Father, we thank you, we bless you in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. This scripture is crazy. It's a crazy scripture when you think about the context in which Jesus was talking. And to explain it, I believe, is even more difficult. I believe Jesus in this situation, one, he's, the, the Sadducees were always around. The Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. They were Jews who did not believe in a resurrection. And so Jesus was constantly communicating about a resurrection, that this is not all there is to life. It's not eat, drink, be merry, and die. There's more that happens after we die. And he's explaining this between a rich man and a poor man. He's explaining it between one person who's tormented in Hades and one person who gets to reside in paradise. And I think many times we lose sight of the reality that there are two places. Even in Matthew chapter 11, it says this. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying some will come, but while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown to outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's these two destinations. We call them heaven and hell. And what's crazy is we talk about heaven usually only when somebody passes away. Like we don't think about heaven much, even though when Jesus taught us how to pray, he taught us to keep an awareness and awakening of the reality of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to be heavenly minded so we can be earthly good. So, but we don't tend to think about heaven except for when somebody passes away. Then we act like heaven is secondary to life. It's like, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm upset they left this life, but at least they get another chance in heaven. No, heaven is the goal. Like, it's the destination we're aiming for. It's not like, well, life is over. Second place is heaven. If God really loved you, you get to live a little bit longer. If, if God really blessed you, maybe you have a little bit more life on here because life is the highlight. Heaven is just the, you know, the resting place after life. No, heaven is the glory of God. Heaven is the pinnacle of the gospel. Heaven is the destination that our souls long for. So we want to talk about heaven when people die, but we don't talk about hell at all anymore. And it's like we're scared to have the conversation. We're scared to talk about hell because we're scared we'll become judgmental and we lose sight that death is a door. 
Death is a door that opens to one or two eternal destinations, either heaven or hell. It's not just heaven. It's not like death is a door that only opens towards heaven. There is a reality that every single person that lives goes through one or two doors. And the problem is, I believe we as people, we prefer not to think about hell. Therefore, we just place everybody in heaven. And in doing so, we limit the glory of God and increase the amount of sin that comes through our life. There's one Sunday school teacher who was teaching on the same scripture. And she was telling the class, you know, you know, here's Lazarus. Here's the rich man. You know, Lazarus is in, in heaven next to Abraham and the rich man's in Hades. And da, da, da. she said, which one would you want to be? So all the little kids raised their hands. I would love to be with, with Abraham. I'd rather be in heaven in paradise. So I'll raise their hands. She asked little RJ in the back of the room. R.J. raised his hand. She said, R.J., which one do you want to be? He says, well, I think I'd like to be the rich man while I'm living, but Lazarus after I die. (laughs) And we laugh, but that's really what we believe. If we had to read this scripture, we think, man, it'd be terrible to be Lazarus, to have a life where you're built on sores that are killing you and aching your body. You're poor. You have nothing to eat. You're waiting for crumbs to fall from a table. You're overlooked by people who walk over you every single day of your life. We want to be Lazarus. And here's here's a key component that just kind of hit me. We preach a gospel that tries to get people to become the rich man rather than getting people to become Lazarus. And I think it's because we're more apt to choose the rich man's destiny Because we only think about what's today rather than thinking what's for eternity. And if we had the choice, what would you choose? A life of suffering in this life with eternal glory and destination? Or a life of comfort now with torment later? The world will tell us they would choose life of comfort and riches and fame now and torment later. And it's a difficult thing. I would choose heaven. I've given my life to choose heaven But it seems like sometimes we get a little off center from heaven to pursue Lazarus and to pursue the rich man's life. And heaven is a glorious place. And I think many times we we choose the rich man's plight because we don't see how glorious heaven is. We we don't think about the depths of heaven, the glory of heaven, the riches of heaven. One of my favorite jokes is this person gets, gets he dies, he goes to heaven, he walks up to heaven. They ask him, they said, what's your religion? He says, well, I'm a Christian. They said, what denomination? He says, I'm Methodist. They said, okay, your house is down the street to the right. Just don't stop at house number eight. I was like, that's that's weird. Next person gets saved. He says, what's your religion? He says, I'm Christian. I believe in Jesus and da-da-da-da. They said, okay, what's your denomination? He said, I'm Pentecostal. They said, you're ready for a party today. They said, your house is down the street to the left. Just don't stop at house number eight. He's like, that's weird. Next person dies, gets saved, he goes into heaven. He said, hey, what's your religion? He said, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus, trust Jesus. He said, okay, what's your denomination? He said, I'm Baptist. He said, we got the world's largest fried chicken potluck you've ever seen. He says, your house is down the street, right past the Pentecostals, right past the Methodists, right there to the left. Go live it up. Boom. He says, well, why can't I stop at house number eight? So he's walking through there. They they get to house number eight. He said, shh, you got to be quiet. He said, why? He said, it's the Church of Christ. They think they're the only ones here. (laughs) If you're Church of Christ, just send me an email. 
Jonathan Edwards says, we don't talk about hell because it doesn't fit our preferences. We don't prefer hell, therefore we just don't talk about it. It also comes to a place in which we don't talk about it or we don't think about it because we believe we're more merciful than God is. And in doing so, we decline to take justice seriously, to take holiness seriously. And so there's lots of objections to Christianity. C.S. Lewis even said, if there was one doctrine, if he could choose to remove it from the scriptures, he would. It would be the doctrine of hell. But he said, I can't because it seems like the Bible talks about hell more than a lot of other things. And Jesus talked about it tremendously. If you throw that scripture up, these are just a few of the scriptures that Jesus, red words in your Bible, talks about eternal punishment, torment, and hell. Like it is impossible. Even if you just said, you know what, I don't believe anything in the Bible except for what is in red. Which is a movement of that now that we don't listen, we don't read uh, Galatians or Romans. We just believe what Jesus said. Liberal theology preaches just let's just live how Jesus lived and do what Jesus did. Well, Jesus talked about this more than a lot of other stuff. And so the fact Jesus talks about something that we don't talk about means there's a misalignment, not on Jesus's side, but on our side. It means that we we think what he said was wrong. And what we say or we think is right. And in doing so, we do a disjustice to the gospel. We preach a half-hearted gospel. But we also live half-hearted lives. We also don't trust God's words for things after life. We only trust them for this life. And Jesus talked about it a lot, even in the scripture. And there's, I want to teach you real quick on the compartments of hell and heaven. So if you throw that one slide up real quick. What happens when you die? A lot of things happen. One, you stop breathing, in case you didn't know. But two, you do not go directly to heaven. You do not go directly towards hell. There's a couple of things that happen. If you are saved in the Old Testament when you died, you went to Abraham's bosom, which is also known as paradise. That's where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the Old Testament saints, that's where they are. It is paradise. When Jesus told the thief on the cross, when you die today, you'll be with me in paradise. He's talking about Abraham's bosom. In the New Testament, when you die, it is paradise. It is paradise, but it's a temporary paradise. It is the abode of all believers until the great judgment. Until you're judged at the end of time, you rest in paradise. Very similar to heaven, same exact scenario, but I'll explain that in a second. At eternity, for all of eternity, you'll dwell in the new heaven and the new earth. This is a component that's missed in most of our teaching. That heaven is not your final resting place. At the end of times, if we want to continue our Easter service, an Easter sermon, that the resurrection was not the end. When you read the gospel story, when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he preached the gospel for 40 days. He showed the disciples what it meant to be a follower of Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit. Then he ascended back up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father to intercede with us. Jesus' ministry today is in heaven interceding for you and I. And he sends the Holy Spirit down to earth to be our internal witness, to be our internal power, our internal guide, our internal comfort, and our internal teacher to prepare us for heaven here on earth. At some point, Jesus is returning. And when he returns, he does not come back as a baby in a manger. In Revelation, it says he comes back as a soldier, listen, ready to kick butt and take names. And when he comes back, he's setting up his kingdom on earth. That's why he says, pray on earth as it is in heaven. He's bringing heaven down. It says creating a new heaven. This earth passes away. 
If you're a green tree hugger, global warming person, I'm sorry, it's all going to end anyway. It burns up so that God can create a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem that will dwell with Christ in perfection for all of eternity. After every single believer is judged based on their works, then we walk into the new heaven and new earth. That is your eternal abode. But if you're unsaved, in the Old Testament, it was Sheol, which is the same thing as Hades, which is the abode or the place in which every non-believing soul rests and waits in torment until the great judgment. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. Same place, different word. Hades is where every non-believing, every person that does not trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, every person who's not converted, when they die and pass away, their abode is in Hades until they wait their final judgment. Once the final judgment happens and believers are now established in the new heavens and new earth, now every unbeliever goes to Gehenna, which is also the lake of fire. That is the final eternal resting place for every non-believing soul, which we call hell. We have to come to a place where we realize that there is an eternal destination for every single soul and every believer and every unbeliever. And there's a judgment at the end of time in which every single person is judged. Non-believers are judged on this. Who do you accept as Lord and Savior in your life? And for any person that does not say Jesus, they're pushed off in the lake of fire. For every person that says, I confess Jesus, my Lord and Savior, I live my life for him. Then the judgment is, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the talents I planted within you? What did you do with the gospel that I gave you? What did you do with the love that I gave you? What did you do with the time that I gave you? Every single one is judged, but at the end, you're still moved on to the new heavens and new earth. You say, well, I may not like that. Why doesn't God just let everybody go to heaven? Well, to say that, one, you think you're more loving than God is. And I don't think there's any of us that can actually say that. There's four quick, just real quick objections to hell. One is rehabilitation. Why does God does not rehabilitate non-believers? One, he tries and he calls it life. He calls it the gospel. That we can't rehabilitate ourselves. We have to die and be born again. Another one's annihilation, which means why doesn't God just get rid of hell and non-believers altogether? It's because he created us eternal beings. If heaven is eternal, hell is eternal. If your soul is eternally good, your soul can be eternally bad. So that doesn't work. Well, why doesn't God just, just, uh, you know, just create purgatory where we can create layers and we can purge sin out of people? Here's the reason why. God gives a solution for sin during life. It's called the blood of Jesus. It is the answer to everything. It is the most loving answer and solution the world could ever dream of. He gives the answer. And just like the rich man, if people don't accept the most loving answer in the world, they're not going to accept any other answer in the world. That God gives a solution that brings renewal, that gets us to a place to reside with him forever and ever and ever. And man still doesn't take it. And here's what it looks like. Jeff, can you come sit in one of these chairs right here? I'll let you be the rich man. Chad, can you come sit in this chair? No, you're in that one right there. You're in hell. Go, go back. <laughs> so uh, reading and, and praying about 10 years ago, I, I discovered this reality of what hell is. And I, I kind of had some 
questions about hell that I didn't, I didn't quite understand. I didn't quite agree. I'm thinking, why can't a loving God just come up with a solution in which everybody gets in? We call that universalism. There's a big debate. Rob Bell's debate was going on. I'm studying the word and I'm trying to figure out the, the depths of God's mercy, but also the depths of God's truth. And here's what I learned. People say, well, if God is a loving God, hell exists to protect what God loves. That heaven is so pure and so holy there has to be separation from what is pure and what is clean from that which is dirty and that is filthy. We call that quarantine in a hospital. If you have newborn babies who are pure and innocent, you don't put them in the same ward with people who are sick with the flu and diseases and germs. We quarantine them off. You don't ever see somebody in the hospital say, well, that's not a very loving doctor. Why is he not uh, into equality? Why didn't he put the, the guy with the flu in there in the, in the nursery with the babies? They get special attention and care. They get to be held and rocked. Why don't they hold and rock the person with the flu next to the babies? We don't, that would not be very loving. But when God says, have all these pure, innocent, holy children of God, I can't let the germs of sin enter heaven. And he creates a separation. It says a great chasm is fixed between the two. That one can't come to the other. The other can't go to the other. And it's, it's, it's a protection mechanism for a father for his children. More than a punishment situation, it's a protection mechanism. He said there's this great chasm fixed that Jeff, who's the rich man who's in Hades. Everybody say hi, Jeff. Everybody say sorry, Jeff. <laughs> You have Chad, who's Lazarus, who's now in paradise. Everybody say, hi, Chad. You got it made. He's living it up. You not so much. Here's the problem. If he comes into heaven, he brings all of hell with him. He brings his sin. He brings his selfishness. He was still selfish in hell. He says, can you just send Lazarus down to help me? Can you, can you just go tell my brothers? Can you give them a son? He's still trying to get God to serve him rather than him living to serve God. So if God would say, you know what? I will have mercy. I'm just going to bring you right up into Abraham's bosom with Lazarus. At some point, the cycle would continue just like it did the first time where Satan would rebel in heaven and create another fall and another kingdom. So God says in order to protect heaven and protect Chad and protect Lazarus from experiencing all that pain of earth and hell again, I'm going to create this great chasm in between the two to protect Chad and protect my children from the depths of hell. We would call that a prison like Alcatraz. Have you ever seen Alcatraz? It's just prison on a rock in the middle of San Francisco Bay. And they'd send all these prisoners who, who didn't want to obey the laws of the land or, or obey the authority. They would send them to Alcatraz where they was protected. Like they couldn't get off the island. If they did, there was shark infested waters. It was cold water. They'd supposedly no one's ever escaped from Alcatraz. And it's a crazy thing because if this was Alcatraz, we look at hell as a form of Alcatraz. In Alcatraz, they could still see San Francisco. They can see the lights at night. They can see the, the bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge. They can see the buildings. They can see all these things, but they're not able to get to it. In the same way, here was the rich man. He was in hell. He could see Lazarus in paradise, but he couldn't get to it. I, I believe that's actually the greatest torment in hell is being able to see the glory of heaven without entering in. But then you have San Francisco Bay. You look like you're from San Francisco, by the way. <laughs> He can't see Alcatraz from his house. He, in heaven, he can't see hell. He's not even thinking about Alcatraz. Why? 
because he's submitted to the authority. He's living his life in glory and in peace and hope by the protection of the legal authorities. Now, he's not worried about that. And it's a quarantine. And so I can only imagine a loving father who loves his kids, that loves his children, would want to protect his people. Like he would want it. And here's where we lose sight of this. We think, well, if God is loving, can he do both? We lose sight of the, in, the amazing amount of seriousness of sin. That sin is so corruptive and destructive that it ruined heaven once. God is never going to let it happen again. We lose sight that sin ruins our lives here on earth. Why would God ever allow there to be any connection between heaven and sin ever again? And it's this great protection mechanism that God says, once you enter into my family, once you enter into my kingdom, you will never have to worry about the pain, the sorrow, the shame, the guilt, the heartache, and the burdens of sin ever again. That is the greatest blessing of heaven. I can rest in God's holiness and never have to wonder about pain, which all pain comes from sin. Sorrow, which all sorrow comes from sin. I can rest in the holiness of God for eternity with no wondering and wandering, fear, anxiety, and confusion. And in our lovingness, we would probably take it both ways. We'd be like the little RJ who says, well, can I just be the rich man now and Lazarus later? No, because God, life is a trial for how you're going to react in heaven. Life is a trial for how you're going to react in heaven. Are you going to submit to God now on earth? Because if you do, then you'll submit to him on, in heaven. Are you going to worship God now? Because if you worship him now, then you can worship him in heaven. Are you going to trust God now? Because then you can trust God in heaven. This is a trial run for which kingdom we're going to dwell in for eternity. And I think Francis Chan said it this way. He said, he said, God is love, but he also defines what love is. We don't have the license to define love according to our own standards. That is a heavy statement. And he says, hell is the backdrop that reveals the profound and unbelievable grace of the cross. It brings to light the enormity of our sin and therefore portrays the undeserved favor of God in full color. When you realize every sin deserves hell, every sin deserves hell because it cannot reside in heaven. Yet God, in his grace, allows us to walk into heaven, not based on our abilities or our efforts, but based on the abilities and efforts of his son. Like you can't understand the depths of grace until you understand the torment of hell. We can't understand the beauty of mercy until we understand the depths and the chaos and the destruction of sin. I heard, I heard Bishop Jake say this one time, and I love this statement. Everyone's saved. Everyone thinks, well, I'm saved. You know, I'm I, I raised man. I'm a believer. And here's what T.D. Jake said. He said, that's great that you're saved. He said, what are you saved from? That's great that you're saved. That's great that on Easter Sunday you raise your hand, you got saved. What are you saved from? Well, I'm saved from, you know, my, my bad decisions. Wrong answer. Well, I, I'm saved from, from feeling guilty about my, my sins. Wrong answer. Well, I'm, I'm saved from, you know, from, from not having purpose to not having purpose. No, 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 wrong answer. Well, I, I'm saved from, from uh, trying to fix up my life and he's going to give me a new life. No, 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 wrong answer. 
You're saved from yourself. You're saved from the depths of the torments of hell. You're saved from the punishment that we all deserved. You're saved from your own actions. You're saved from your own abilities. You're saved from your own wrongdoings. You're saved from your own weaknesses. You're saved from your own punishment, your own penalty, and you're saved to the glory of God. Like that's the only answer there can be. I'm saved from my sin. I'm saved from being a sinner and I'm saved unto being a son or daughter of God. This cold, crazy unction that everybody's a child of God is wrong. Not everybody's a child of God. Only those who've been born again into his family are children of God. They all may be created by God. He wants them to be children. He wants them to be with him for all of eternity. But they have a choice to either serve themselves or surrender and die to themselves and become born again children, daughters and sons of the Most High God. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. He says, it doesn't matter how great this life is. If you don't walk through this door correctly, it changes everything. So real quick, three quick points between heaven and hell. Death is a door that leads to heaven where God's holiness reigns, where everything's holy. God's authority, his holiness reigns, or death is a door to hell where our desires reign. Get this. In heaven, you don't have to question who's in charge. In heaven, you have to wonder, uh, you know, who's in charge here? In heaven, you don't, have to, you don't have to think about which decision to make or, or what you're going to do with your life or what you're going to do with your day. or what you're gonna, You don't have to wonder, you know, I wonder who's the boss. In Revelation, the, the revelation is this, that there's a throne in the center of heaven and everything surrounds that throne. I don't look at it as a throne, the platform. I look at it as a throne and all the way around it, heaven revolves around the throne like the earth around the sun. And I believe that throne is the center because that is the, where the holiness of God reigns. It's where we realize I'm here because of him. He's not here because of me. I'm here because of him. In Revelation, it says it this way. He says, he was set there, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian around the throne. There was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders and 24 thrones clothed in white garments and gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as a sea of glass like crystal, which is so much peace that the rivers settled down. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures. Now this will mess you up right here. Four living creatures full of eyes in the front and back, so it's like a horror movie, but with no, no fear. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's not one song they sing. That's the only song they sing. And they sing it every single moment for all of eternity. Holy, holy, holy. Which means everything in heaven is exactly how God intended it to be. There's not a blemish. There's not a flaw. Every emotion is perfect. Every thought is perfect. Every desire is perfect. Every day is perfect. 
Every second is perfect. It's perfect. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was just a glimpse into heaven, how everything was perfectly designed and pure. Hell and the opposite. Hell is based on our desires. Our desires reign. What I wanted reigns. And it says it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Sounds like God has given them something. God gave them up to their own hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about a God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to deplorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When it says he gave them up, here's what I believe hell is. If heaven is a place where God's desire reigns, hell is a place in this place where God says, you know what? You can just have it yourself. If you want those desires, here you can have them and you can let them reign. And where our desires reign, we call that place hell. And I'll tell you, every place where you're submitted to God's desire will be heaven on earth. Every place you submit to your own desires will be hell on earth. And eternally, it's going to be the exact same thing. That God says, you know what? You want it? It's the same thing he did with, with Satan in heaven. Satan was trying to re take over the kingdom, set up his own kingdom in heaven, establish his own throne in heaven, and God kicks him out and says, you want to create your own kingdom? Set it up. Create your own kingdom. Do what you want to do. Have your own way. And he sends them out of heaven. And you know what the kingdom is called? Hell. You know what I believe? I believe it illustrates that we are terrible, terrible at creating our own kingdoms. We are terrible at creating our own kingdoms. But yet all of us strive to create our own kingdoms. We strive to fulfill our own desires and our own desires, once we see them all come to being, is hell. Hell is a place where everybody pursues their own agenda. Hell is a place where everybody pursues their own, their own stuff. And it's a place where, C.S. Lewis said this brilliantly. He said, hell is a prison locked from the inside. He said, hell is a prison locked from the inside, meaning God didn't throw you in there. You chose to be there because you thought all of your desires would be fulfilled. You thought you could have your way and do it. He also said it this way. He said, there's only two types of people. Those that when they respond to God said, God, thy will be done in my life. And those that they say to God, my will be done in my life. And the difference between the two is heaven and hell. And the only way we can apply that now is I have to submit and surrender my life and my decisions to God's holiness here rather than my own desires, my own authority, my own ways. Romans 1 is all about, am I going to trust God's ways or am I going to trust my ways? Am I going to surrender my desires to God's desires or am I going to get God to surrender to my desires? That's the only outcome in the door of eternity. And number two, Death is a door to heaven that is centered on relationships and love, or death is a door to hell that is centered on selfishness and individualism. Heaven is a place of family. Heaven is a huge family reunion. It's centered on the love of God, and there is no fear in heaven because love, perfect love casts out all fear. It's centered on this family dynamic. So much so in Psalms it says, the solitary God places into family. Heaven is centered on this family dynamic and amazing, immense amount of love 
that is eternal. It's centered on that. It's centered on the love of Christ that drew us towards him, now draws us into heaven. It's centered on this depth of love that loves us even when we were sinners, was still trying to love us to draw us to him. Hell, on the other hand, is centered on selfishness and individualism. One guy wrote a parable, and he asked God, he said, God, what's the difference between heaven and hell? God said, I'm going to show you two rooms. He goes in the first room, there's a pot of stew on the stove. And there's a bunch of people, they look real famished. Like they're skin and bones. They look miserable. They're tormented. They look hungry. And he says, why are they not eating? And he said, they had these spoons, but the spoons were longer. The handles were longer than the arms. And they could reach the stove, but they couldn't get it back towards their mouth. And so they spend all eternity trying to reach into the stew to try to feed themselves, but they're just famished with hunger. And they keep on. He says, that's terrible. God takes him into the next room. The next room looks exactly the same as the first room. There's a stove. There's a pot of stew on the stove. There's all these people. These people look different. They look plump. That means I'll make it to heaven with a little plump belly. He says, they look plump. They look good. They look healthy. He said, what's the difference? He said, the first group keeps trying to feed themselves with the spoon, but the spoon will never reach their mouth because the handle's too long. He said, the other group in heaven, they realize that they can feed each other. That's the difference between heaven and hell. Every single person in heaven is there, not by their own doing, but by trusting the love and the relationship of Jesus. And they share that with each other. Hell is based on me doing mine and me getting mine. And it radiates in hell. And so how do we apply that now? I have to trust. I have to abide in a relationship with Christ now, but also with each other. I think the greatest story, the point in this Lazarus story is that we believe that I can worship God. My relationship is about me and God. The rich, the rich man walked over a child of God every single day. He was living his life for himself, fulfilling his own desires, living for his pursuits, living for his satisfaction and overlooking the pain of another. Jesus was harsh in using this parable because in the same way, if you're going to make it in heaven, you have to learn to love people here. Like you have to, that's why groups are so important here. I watched two groups this weekend have just fun events where I'm watching. They're going through life together. They're helping each other through life. They're loving each other now. They're taking care of each other's needs. They're like the group in the room that they may not be able to feed themselves with the spoon, but they can feed each other and take care of each other. That's the difference between heaven and hell. Hell, you can do whatever you want. Satisfy whatever desires you want. But no one's going to be there to drop the drip of water on your tongue to satisfy your thirst. And in heaven, you'll have no thirst. But you'll be full of relations. Point three. Death is a door to heaven that, where hope is fulfilled. Or death is a door to, where, to hell where regret is realized. Lazarus had all hope. Can you imagine this young, I think he's young, this young man laying with all these sores, just hoping that one day he'll no longer have pain. Every morning he wakes up, hoping somebody will lay down and, with him and maybe comfort him just a little bit. Every morning he's waking up, going back to the same front porch of the rich man, laying there, hoping somebody will just give him a sandwich. Somebody will give him some water. Somebody will give all these hopes hoping for a better life, hoping for something new, hoping for some fulfillment, hoping for something to take away the pain every single day. And then now in this story, you see him at Abraham's side. Every single thing he hoped for is fulfilled. 
Like heaven's this place where hope is fulfilled. Every prayer goes away because you don't have to pray anymore. It's all given to you in Jesus. Every question and answer are now the same thing. Everything you're desiring, all love, looking for love and unconditional love, looking for acceptance, it's fulfilled in heaven. Looking for eternal purpose, it's fulfilled in heaven. Looking for joy, it's fulfilled in heaven. Looking for peace, it's fulfilled in heaven. The sea of glass, it's like the, the water's early in the morning at the lake, that if you get out there real early before the wind blows and you watch the river, it's smooth. It's like a perfect mirror. Why? It's undisturbed. It's, un, it's not unsettled. But if you take a stone and throw it into the river or the pond, it ripples and it breaks up that reflection. That sea of glass in heaven shows there's no disturbances in heaven. It's perfect peace. There's no anxiety, no fear, no worry, no shame, no guilt, no poverty. It's perfect. Every hope is fulfilled. But on the other side, hell is a place where you live with all regret. All regret. Here's the rich man. He's saying, if I could just have a drip of water. He says, well, will you go tell my brothers? If you just go tell my brother, listen to you. See, he was regretting, I didn't do what I was supposed to do in my life. Now I wish I had a second chance to do it again. Hell is a place I feel like the greatest torment, not just seeing from one place to the other, but living with this regret that if I would have known what I know now, I would have changed what I did then. Mary Baxter, in a great book called The Divine Revelation of Hell, writes all these stories about how she felt like she had a revelation. She went into heaven and hell and hell. Everyone was full of regret. They were thinking, if I knew, if I could have changed this, if I would have could have changed that, if I'd have known that this was real. And hell is this place where every regret just radiates for all of eternity. What if I could have loved my wife better? What if I could have prayed for my kids more? What if I could actually share the gospel that saved me to those around me? What if I didn't live my life for myself? What if I lived it for other people? What if I actually believed in the eternal life Jesus promised? What if? Hell is this place where the what ifs reign. Heaven's a place where there are no ifs. There's only holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and is to come. We've answered the four questions in the past couple weeks. Origin. God created you. And he created you with a purpose. And after he created you, created Adam and Eve, we all turned away to sin. We all turned our way. We all got our inheritance. We all ran to the pigsty like the prodigal son. We all ran off. Even though God placed a purpose inside of us. Even though he knows the right path of right and wrong to get us where we need to be. But he has an eternal destiny for everything created. If we want to close and put a bow on this, for everything created, God has a destiny for it. And that destiny is heaven. God doesn't want anyone, and 2 Peter says, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all come to repentance so they can experience everlasting life with him. So God created everybody, and he wants everybody to be with him. But here's the problem. If I don't believe God created me, I don't believe God has a home for me. Or I may believe God created me, but I believe God created me with a purpose to be satisfied of myself and to live my own way and to become like the rich man. And so we use this illustration of this boxcar. So I believe God created us as a boxcar that on the outside may look rough, may have some graffiti, but on the inside are some very valuable contents. 
Some of those are gifts. Some of those are talents. Some of that is potential that God wants you in life to travel through and just deposit to the places he takes you. But the only way you can get there is if you connect to each other, the church, build community, and attach yourself to the engine, which is Jesus. So he can take you, the morality side, he can take you on a straight path that doesn't sway to the left or to the right. Straight path from here all the way into heaven. But you can't get there on your own. The boxcar cannot make it on its own. It has to be connected to the engine. Where he takes us into everlasting love and everlasting hope. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. No amount of hell will ever enter heaven. That's why God doesn't try to rehabilitate us. He tries to give us a new life. And I know this is a it's not your Joel Osteen type message. But this is the message Jesus preached. And I believe Jesus is bringing back to the forefront of his teaching. So real quick, every head bowed, every eye closed. Death is a door that opens to one of two eternal destinations. For those who have died to themselves and been resurrected with Christ, you reside with him forever and ever in eternity in paradise, and then in new heavens, new earth. Or those who do not trust God, those who have not died to themselves, those that keep trying to live for themselves and live their own way outside the rule and reign of Christ, take a left-hand turn through the door. And as Jesus said, spend eternity with a gnashing of teeth and weeping and torment. Not because he wants to punish them, but because he turned them over to their own desires. This morning, just a quick, quick question. If today was the day you walked through that door, that death called, car accident on the way home, heart attack this evening, and that door was opened, which destination would you walk into? If you know Jesus, you surrender your life to Jesus, you live for Jesus, He's not just Savior. He's also Lord of your life. You'd walk into heaven if that's you. So you know what? As I walk through that door of death, I'm confident I walk right into Abraham's bosom, right into paradise. That's you. I want you to slip your hand up right where you are. Hold them. That's you. So you know what? If I was to die today, I know I'm walking straight into heaven. Second question. So you know what? If the door opened today, I'm not that confident that I'd walk into heaven. I never really thought about there's two destinations. I just thought when I died, I'd go to a better place. But you say, you know what, today I'm, I'm thinking through that. And I'm not confident I would walk into that place. That's you. Just slip your hand up right where you are real quick. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Wait just a second. If death opened the day, when you're walking to one of two eternal destinations, would you be Lazarus? Or would you be the poor, the rich man? Father, I thank you so much for your peace. I thank you for your hope. But also thank you that you're just. I thank you that you're holy. And Father, I thank you that you protect your children 
in your love and in your comfort and in your peace and in your joy in heaven. And Father, I thank you for your word that guides us and directs us to everything you have in store for us. But Father, I also thank you that where there is a, an attempt to take away, there's always a solution. And we thank you right now for the blood of Jesus. Where the enemy tried to rise up like a flood, you rose up a standard. And we thank you that standard is not our own abilities, our own efforts. We thank you that standard is Jesus and Jesus alone. And right now, Father, we plead the blood of Jesus over all those that raise their hands, that are not confident. Right now, Father, I pray that you open up their eyes and their hearts to eternity. Father, allow for them to trust you. Allow for them to surrender to you and submit their lives to you, to die to themselves and to be resurrected in your son, Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We also thank you for what you're going to do. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the prayer team up as we get ready to dismiss. Any lay pastors or elders or prayer team, if y'all come forward, and if you raise your hand for the second question, if you'd come down front and just let them pray for you for just a minute and, and love on you and encourage you. And as you're leaving, a couple quick things. You can stand to your feet as we get ready to dismiss. A couple quick things. One, as soon as you leave here, if you want to go check out the Dream Center, just across the street by the car wash, that's retail shopping center. You can go in there, walk through there. They'll show you around there a little bit. But also, we are called to make an impact. And I have two steps for you to take that you can take to make that impact. One of two. One is we have Teacher Appreciation Week. We believe we're called. I love teachers because they deal with my kids all day, every day. But they also, they go through a lot of work, a lot of turmoil, a lot of stress, a lot of pain. And we're going to love on our teachers during Teacher Appreciation Week. And so if you want to help with that, what we're basically doing is taking breakfast to all the schools in the Florence City School District. Early in the morning, we'll take food. So we need help preparing food. If you can prepare a dish or if you can take and serve some dishes uh, with us, that would be great. So you can text that teacher's word to that number, and that'll get you hooked up with that. Somebody will follow up with you this week. Also, we're doing a football camp. Jamark Woods, one of our kids here at the church, plays football for the Uni University of Michigan. Last year, he wanted to do a football camp. So we're gonna help sponsor that with him. And the NCAA got involved. So we ended up taking that camp over. He's running the camp. We're, we're sponsoring the camp and kind of leading it from the front end. And so if you wanna serve that, basically be with check-in and registration, water, refreshments, stuff like that for the kid. It's a really cool camp. Last year we had 18 Division I college athletes from Alabama and Auburn and Texas A&M, uh, not LSU, Georgia, uh, Louisville, Michigan, UAB, all over the country for free for students fifth through eighth grade to come be around these kids. And what was really cool was they taught them football, taught them these things. At the end, each one of these football players taught them character things that they learned that helped them become who they were that day. It's a great event. If you want to help with that, just text the word football to that same number that'll hook you up. And last but not least, intensives, essentials. If you've been here for a while and you've not been connected yet, next Saturday morning, essentials intensive, 9 a.m., text the word essentials to that number, and you I'll have a great time finding your purpose, finding who you are, and finding family here at chapel. And outside of that, uh, we'll skip the creed so you can get out of here today. I hope you have a great rest of the week. We'll see you next Sunday.